You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's been a while since I've opened an episode ragging on bad movies. So here goes. Today's movie review you can lose is about a Disney-produced 1985 comedy adventure that starts to fall apart before you even get through the title. It's called Baby, which is not a great title for a 1985 comedy adventure in the vague spirit of Romancing the Stone, I'm sure you'll agree. But worry not, because the brilliant execs at Disney and Touchstone Pictures were aware of the problem. What Baby needed, they figured, was a subtitle. Something evocative, something intriguing, something to get the audience in the seats. There are a lot of good words that might do the trick. Secret, or legend, or lost. And obviously those are just the first to come to mind. You put them up on the whiteboard to get the old creative juices flowing. But then it's lunchtime and you're a 1980s movie executive, so you're either nursing a hangover or desperate to score some blow, so you say, yeah, yeah, whatever, let's just make it that. And some subordinate beneath you timidly asks, make make it what? What's on the board there, you answer, trying to suppress the itch crisscrossing your hand through your chest and up into your brain. Oh, okay, he answers. But before the words slip through his confused lips, you're out the door, leaving him and us to work it out for ourselves. What we're left with is, is it one of the worst titles in movie history? Not according to The Hollywood Reporter, but I'll let you judge for yourself. According to them, the worst movie title of all time is Fooft. That's P-H, three F's, and a T. Yeah, okay, that's hard to top. High marks go out, of course, to some of the most infamous titles in the pop cultural consciousness, Chud. Chud. Cannibalistic. Humanoid. Underground. Dwellers. Ballistic X versus Sever. And of course, Breakin' 2. Electric Boogaloo. You forget it, you'll regret it. Electric Boogaloo. The Hollywood Reporter dings some titles for length. To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Or Quackster Fortune Has a Cousin in the Bronx. Some are too confusing, like Santa with Muscles, while others have the opposite problem, like 2011's We Bought a Zoo, which is one of the few movies ever made that you can see in its entirety just by reading the title. And then there are the viscerally upsetting movie titles, like The Hottie and the Naughty, which really does make my bone marrow shift around. Still, 
I think Baby deserves a spot on the list. It's worse than Herbie Fully Loaded or The Love Guru, which are examples where the titles, though bad, are probably still the best things about the films. And I don't even understand how It Follows got on the list. It Follows is a great title for a great movie. Who even wrote this listicle? Show yourself, Hollywood Reporter Reporter. Judge for yourself. The full title of the movie in question is Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. That's at least as bad as Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul. Worse, actually, since at least the Legend of the Guardians has the common decency to put a colon between the title and the sub. Not so with Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. No, there's no colon there, not a line break either. Instead, there is an ellipse. An ellipse! How do you even pronounce that? Is it like a dramatic pause? Baby. Secret of the Lost Legend. That's not how you voice an ellipse. Maybe it's a question. Baby. Secret of the Lost Legend? It ought to be an ashamed trailing off. Baby, secret of the lost legend. But that's not how you voice an ellipse either. There should be a sub-subtitle written in four-point font that just says, sorry. Anyway, as you have no doubt guessed, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend is about... 1985. A startling event takes place in remote West Africa. The search for something that couldn't possibly exist. But does. Brontosaurus is being discovered in Africa. And since it is a 1985 movie set in Africa, you can also no doubt guess that it stars a whole bunch of white people. Which actually is totally appropriate for reasons the filmmakers definitely didn't understand. So, white people in Africa, get used to it. The heroic white people of Baby Legend of the Lost Secret are paleontologist Dr. Susan Matthews Loomis and her husband, George Loomis, a disgruntled, out-of-work sports writer who begrudgingly joins her in pursuing reports from local villagers of a supposed monster out in the jungle. Susan is played by the normally wonderful Sean Young of Blade Runner, Dune, Fatal Instinct, and Ace Ventura fame, but in Baby, Secret of the Legendary Lost, she's a dour, self-serious stand-in for everything the men making movies in 1985 found unlikable about feminism, right down to that hyphenated surname. George is played by... Oh, wait, I recognize him. But from what? Who could it be? Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Ah, yes, it's William Cat from the ill-conceived, ill-delivered, and ill-titled early 80s sitcom Greatest American Hero. Believe it or not, it's just me. Which served mostly as a delivery method for its hilariously catchy theme song. The less said about Cat, the better. Susan and George discover a family of brontosauruses, Natch, but the adult male is soon killed by an evil mix of white scientists and African militiamen, led by big bad Dr. Eric Kiviet. A brontosaurus hatchling. I don't know what you're talking about. I read your notes, my dear. Susan's former mentor, who has a secret plan to capture the brontosauruses. shooting one of them would seem to get in the way of so that he can win a prize or extract makeup from their glands or turn them into robots or who gives a shit. 
the mother brontosaurus runs off, leaving Susan and George to take care of the juvenile they call, what else, baby. It is a not-at-all heavy-handed metaphor for the couple trying to decide whether to have a child of their own. A disproportionate percentage of baby lost of the secret legend is spent watching George trying to seduce Susan, only to be interrupted by that lovable scamp, Baby the Brontosaurus. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. That's the comedy part of the comedy adventure, and it's a gag so nice they use it twice. The rest of the time, they're trying to reunite Baby with Mama while evading the villainous Dr. Kiviet. They cast Patrick McGowan to play Dr. Kiviet, and in terms of sheer talent and knowing what movie he's in, he's head and shoulders above the rest. But the character is so mustache-twirling that even the creator of The Prisoner can't make him make sense. When the Bronto mama picks him up like a ragdoll and shreds him into hundreds of bloody ribbons, it's hard to even muster a dim sense of satisfaction. But it sure is an abrupt tone shift, let me tell you. The only character I feel a lick of sympathy for in the whole thing is Dr. Kiviet's assistant, Nigel Jenkins, who grows more disturbed about the mission as it descends deeper into violence and madness. When Nigel was killed off, I actually felt... Wait a second. Is that... Downton Abbey creator Julian Fellows? Kill him! Kill him, mama! Is there anything at all to like about Baby Secret of the Secret Secret? No, not really. It's cliche, it's racist, it's boring, it's chauvinistic. The dinosaurs look awful, like they're people covered in foam rubber walking around on their hands and knees. Because that is what they are! In his original review, Roger Ebert pointed out how disappointingly squandered the whole thing was. The idea of discovering still-living dinosaurs out in the wild should be thrilling, it should be fantastic. Instead, Baby is just an overgrown and awkwardly immobile puppy, constantly interrupting William Cat while he's trying to lay the pipe in his mildly unwilling scientist wife. Baby, he wrote, is another example, a dreary one, of the glory of nature being turned into a cliché of man. Yeah, but Ebert didn't know the half of it. There's a better story hiding somewhere within the dreck that is Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, a story about wonder and majesty and hope, yes, but also about delusion about people ruining their lives and careers in pursuit of an impossible dream, about people succumbing to fanaticism, colonialism, and bigotry, a story of curiosity exploited and transformed to serve a dangerous and retrograde agenda. Because, believe it or not, the uninspired and uninspiring paint-by-numbers 1985 Disney comedy adventure Baby Secret of the Lost Legend was based on a true story. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Do You Think He Saw Us? In fairness to the baby screenwriters, while the true story is undeniably more interesting than what they came up with, it is a lot harder to tell. Take the relatively simple question of the stasis, the old world order, or in less writerly terms, where the hell to begin? You could start in 1776 or 1871. 
1878, or 1909, 1911. Hell, if you want to, you can take it all the way back to 575 BC, and you better believe that we will. But before all that, we might as well begin with the one character in Baby Secret of the Lost Legend who is a part of the true story the movie is based on, the evil Dr. Eric Kiviet, aka Roy Mackle. Unlike his on-screen counterpart, Roy Mackle wasn't a comedy adventure villain. Not quite, at least. His character arc follows more along the lines of the dramatic hero, a talented, brilliant man whose successful life is eventually undone by Hamartia, his tragic flaw. Born in Milwaukee in 1925, Roy Mackle attended the University of Chicago on a GI Bill after serving as a Marine during World War II. He earned his bachelor's in 1949 and then stayed on to achieve a Ph.D. in biochemistry. He joined the faculty of U Chicago after graduating in 1953, working in the university's vaunted Evans Virus Laboratory. Dr. Mackle was one of the top minds in one of the top fields at one of the top universities in the world. Within a year, he was named an associate professor. In a couple more, he was more or less running the lab, according to his colleagues. He became the first scientist to grow viruses outside of living cells, made important advances in our understanding of DNA, and published an impressive string of landmark papers on bacteriophages, viruses that infect bacteria, which led to important insights in microbiology, virology, and genetics. He wasn't just smart either, but kind, remembered by his peers for his patience and attention to detail. In his free time, he was an amateur engineer who spent time in the university machine shop, developing a host of practical inventions, including a number of scientific instruments, an improved method for producing and harvesting bacteria, a hydrogen generator for weather balloons, and an automatic parachute deployment and recovery system for suborbital rockets. There was another side to Roy Mackle, though. The same colleagues that praised his hard work, intelligence, and compassion also referred to him as a romantic and it sure seems like they were working hard to find the least pejorative descriptor they could. From the time Mackle was a small child, this romantic side had existed, fed on stories by Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Not so different from many people, and many scientists, too. But in 1965, that romantic side started to become unleashed. Mackle was 40 years old vacationing with his family in Scotland when he chanced upon a small group of, uh, researchers, let's say, near Inverness. They were out there searching for something along the shores of a long, narrow lake, or loch. Loch Ness. They called themselves the Loch Ness Phenomenon Investigation Bureau, and Roy Mackle was intrigued. That is underselling it significantly, actually. He dropped his vacation plans and joined up with the group immediately. He stayed with them for the next 10 years, serving as scientific director of the Bureau until it disbanded in 1975. The members of the Bureau were very happy to have him. In 1948, a Scottish ethnologist and adventurer by the name of Ivan T. Sanderson published an article in the Saturday Evening Post entitled, There Could Be Dinosaurs in which he argued that, well, that there could be dinosaurs still alive out there, hidden in the wild. 
Sanderson's article caught the eye of the similarly inclined Belgian zoologist Bernard Uvelmans. Accounts of who said it first differ from source to source and moment to moment, but by the late 1950s, both Sanderson and Uvelmans were helping put a new word out into the culture. Cryptozoology. Now, here in the year of our Lord 2022, you probably think you know what cryptozoology is. But if you're in a safe place, take a moment and ask yourself, do you? Every year, hundreds of new species are discovered. The preponderance of them, insects, most of those beetles, interestingly. Yet are the cryptozoologists sending up fireworks with the discovery of C. scully, the recently discovered ambrosia beetle named for Gillian Anderson's X-Files character? They are not. If you take cryptozoology at face value as a field devoted to discovering unknown creatures, this feels like a paradox. And it's one that Uvelmans dealt with in the early days. To be considered a cryptid animal, he wrote, it takes more than simply being an undiscovered animal. It must be, quote, truly singular, unexpected, paradoxical, striking, or emotionally upsetting. In one sense, those criteria make the job of cryptozoology more difficult. They narrow the field's window down to only include the most unlikely and spectacular of possible subjects. They also hurt the argument that cryptozoology is a real science. There's no other field that restricts itself artificially based on what is truly the most subjective and non-scientific standard, how a thing makes you feel. From word one, cryptozoology was rightly greeted with skepticism by the scientific establishment. Uvelmans and Sanderson, though, at least had real backgrounds in science. Besides them, the community had and has long suffered trying to legitimize itself by gaining the support of accredited, reputable experts. This search itself doesn't do adherence a lot of favors. It looks desperate and untoward, and in most cases disingenuous. If some dude with a PhD wanders in, they lift him up over their shoulders and parade him around, even if that PhD is in medieval tapestries and comes from the University of American Samoa. When Dr. Roy Mackle showed up, they saw a great opportunity for what's commonly referred to as credential-mongering. Mackle had a doctorate from one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Even better, it was in biology. Okay, microbiology, and he had no experience in field research or zoology, but still, welcoming him into the ranks was a major coup. And to his credit, Roy Mackle did seek to gussy up the joint. Everyone, from his colleagues at the Loch Ness Phenomenon Investigation Bureau to his colleagues at the University of Chicago, agreed that he was acutely interested in handling the search for spectacular animals with real seriousness. He systematized the search for Nessie, bringing in side-scanning sonar, miniature submarines, and even a long biopsy harpoon of his own devising, with which he hoped to one day capture a physical sample. There was a real duality to it all, though. On the one hand, he would tell interviewers that he understood what he was trying to do was difficult, and that he was unlikely to succeed. He maintained the poise of a skeptic, saying that the chances of this or that legendary monster being real were remote. Yet, in his heart of hearts, he believed. Though he never gathered scientific evidence of the Loch Ness Monster, he was convinced not only that it did exist, but that he had seen it. When the Bureau disbanded in 1975, Mackle said it was for the best. 
He wasn't interested in the question of Nessie anymore, now that he had his answer. Sure, he couldn't prove it, but he knew. He wrote a book, making the case for a large animal residing in Loch Ness. He didn't think it was a plesiosaur, as most of his fellow cryptozoologists did. In his first book, he argued that there was a population of large invertebrates in the waters of Loch Ness, some sort of cephalopod. Later, he changed his mind and concluded that it must be a zooglodon, or Bacillosaurus, a large prehistoric toothed whale that is thought to have gone extinct a mere 34 million years ago, that Loch Ness was under a glacier until just 13,000 years ago, doesn't seem to have much troubled him. No matter. It was while out promoting his first book on Loch Ness that he met James H. Powell Jr., ostensibly a herpetologist or reptile scientist who was ostensibly studying crocodiles. I say ostensibly twice because it is not clear to me either that Powell was a herpetologist, he at least doesn't seem to have had a doctorate, or that he was really interested in studying crocodiles. Not at the point he met Mackle, at least. By then, he had been seduced by the possibility that eventually inspired baby secret of the lost legend, that there was a population of dinosaurs, perhaps brontosauruses, hiding in the African Congo. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep the same one your entire life? That's how our brains work, so why don't we treat them that way? How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I think that everyone stands to benefit from therapy. It isn't just for when you've got a problem. It's like general maintenance for your well-being. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash The Constant. That's Better H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant a puzzle what would you do if your business had to hire great people fast here's a hint you need indeed indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract interview and hire all in one place instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. No other job site takes care of you like Indeed, because with Indeed, you only have to pay if an applicant meets your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. 
Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. Visit Indeed.com slash The Constant to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In 1776, a French missionary named Abbé Levin Bonaventure Proyart published a book entitled History of Luongo, Kakonga, and Other Kingdoms in Africa. I can't imagine how they fit the full title and author on the cover, but that's probably the sort of thing 18th century French printing presses were used to dealing with. Buried within Proyart's book was a two-sentence story of a supposed encounter some fellow missionaries had experienced. The missionaries have observed in passing along a forest the track of an animal, which they have never seen. But it must be monstrous. The prints of its claws are seen on the earth and formed an impression on it of about three feet in circumference. In observing the posture and disposition of the footsteps, they concluded that it did not run this part of its way, and that it carried its claws at a distance of seven or eight feet from one another. Being an obscure passage in an obscure book by an obscure author, it didn't exactly set the world on fire. It had taken nearly 200 years for someone to read about these gigantic footsteps and conclude they belonged to a dinosaur. Which is only natural, given that most people who could have read Proyart's book for the first 150 years after its publication would have had no idea that there were dinosaurs in the first place, at least not large land-dwelling quadrupeds like the sauropods, the family of long-necked dinosaurs that includes the Brachiosaurus and Apatosaurus. The Welsh naturalist Edward Ludd had discovered a single sauropod tooth way back in 1699 and attributed it to an animal of his own imagining, which he called Retellum implicatum. But he didn't know what Retellum implicatum was or what dinosaurs were, or that there were animals out there that had gone extinct. 150 years after Ludd, the English paleontologist Sir Richard Owen hypothesized that a selection of sauropod teeth came from a giant sea-dwelling crocodile and named it Cetiosaurus, or whale lizard. Owen coined the term dinosaur the next year, but didn't include the whale lizards among them. In 1870, a British paleontologist discovered several sauropod vertebrae, which he noted were partially hollow, like a bird's and so named them Ornithopsis, or bird face. Not a lot of progress from the British paleontologists, but worry not, the Americans were on their way. Throughout the 1870s, a number of near-complete sauropods, including an Apatosaurus and a Diplodocus, were discovered in the American West by Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh. I have been planning a very special episode about Cope and Marsh for years now, and it's still probably years away. Their story is perhaps my favorite in all of scientific history, so if you have the patience, it'll one day be rewarded, God willing. Otherwise, I guess give them a Google. Cope and Marsh were able to reconstruct the nearly complete skeletons they'd discovered, and sometimes, if they weren't, they'd fake it or glue together bones from different species. I'm telling you, it's a good story. And soon, the world saw them. 
In 1905, the American Museum of Natural History unveiled the fossilized remains of what Marsh had incorrectly named Brontosaurus. The opening gala was attended by the cream of the social and scientific crop, including J.P. Morgan and Nikola Tesla. Steel magnate Andrew Carnegie had financed the discovery of a nearly complete Diplodocus, which he donated at roughly the same time to King Edward for display at the Natural History Museum in London. But before he did, Carnegie had casts made to be displayed at his museum in Pittsburgh. That mold then spread, providing Diplodocuses to Berlin, Paris, Spain, Russia, Italy, Mexico, and more. It was sauropod mania. Barely anyone had ever seen anything like an Apatosaurus before, not even in pictures. And then suddenly, there they were, towering above practically every museum goer in the Western world. Toys and murals, books and songs. After 1905, sauropods were everywhere. Which meant the hunt was on to find more of them. In 1907, a German mining engineer named Bernard Sattler was overseeing a mine in what was then German East Africa, what's today known as the Tendaguru Beds in Tanzania, when he noticed some very large and impressive fossils. He got in touch with a fellow countryman and eminent paleontologist named Eberhard Frass, who immediately made his way to Tendaguru to see what he could find. A lot! He could find a lot! In the Tendaguru beds, Fraz dug out the first Allosaurus, the first Stegosaurus, and more. The finds were incredible, rivaling any made anywhere else in the world. But they weren't made anywhere else in the world. They were made in Africa. And to white Europeans, that was different. Africa wasn't like America, and it certainly wasn't like Europe. It was a mysterious place, the Dark Continent, primeval and savage. And yes, most of that is racist bullshit, but even pushing the hulking xenophobia aside for a moment, it was true that there were wide swaths of Africa that white people, at least, had never seen or documented. Who knew what could be in there? Carl Hagenbeck was uh, an asshole. That's true, but it's not very useful, so let me explain. We talked about Hagenbeck a little bit back in our episode on the 1904 Olympic marathon, Run for Your Life. Hagenbeck is primarily known as the father of the modern zoo. He pioneered the idea of creating cageless habitats for animals that mimicked their natural surroundings. Which might sound like a good thing, but hold on, because Hagenbeck was also the primary supplier of animals to the older, worse kind of zoos, not to mention the circuses of P.T. Barnum. And if that's not enough, he created the first human zoo, which is precisely what it sounds like, capturing, enslaving, and exhibiting indigenous peoples from around the world, from Samoa to Lapland to Greenland to Africa to Asia, all of whom were mistreated and many of whom died, either from disease or in the periodic revolts that tended to happen when the people he was imprisoning tried to get free. Just a fucking gem of a guy. Anyway. When Carl Hagenbeck heard about the fossil discoveries at Tindaguru Beds, it got him thinking, which is never something you wanted Carl Hagenbeck to do. He wondered if the dinosaurs found in Africa might be different than those located elsewhere, because maybe they were still alive. In his 1909 book, Beasts and Men, what a title for this fuckwad, but I digress. In his 1909 book, Beasts and Men, he made his case. 
Some years ago, I received reports of the existence of an immense and wholly unknown animal said to inhabit the interior of Rhodesia. Almost identical stories reached me, firstly through one of my own travelers, and second through an English gentleman who had been shooting big game in Central Africa. Ugh. The natives, it seemed, had told both my informants that in the depths of the great swamps there dwelt a huge monster, half elephant, half dragon. It seems to me that it can only be some kind of dinosaur, seemingly akin to the Brontosaurus. Naturally, Hagenbeck immediately set out a party of hunters to try to capture this Brontosaurus so that he could make a mint off of it. Luckily for everyone except Hagenbeck, he failed. Actually, maybe luckily for him too. Did he really need another plate of lead added to the weight of his soul? Though Hagenbeck didn't find any African dinosaurs, he wrote with confidence that they were out there, and his reputation carried the possibility far and wide. Newspapers around the world made announcements of Hagenbeck's claim, with the Washington Post running an especially blunt headline, which read, Brontosaurus Still Lives. The discovery of fossils in Tanzania had led to a storm of dinosaur hunters of the paleontological variety. Hagenbeck's baseless decree was the sounding horn for a more traditional kind of search party. Paul Greitz was a lieutenant in the Royal Saxon military, but is better known as the German Indiana Jones, sans the Nazi killing. Between August of 1907 and May of 1909, he became the first person to travel the length of Africa by car, which was the sort of thing that could transform you into a national German hero at the time. So, naturally, two years later, he returned, hoping to become the first person to travel the length of Africa by motorboat. This journey was a lot more contentious. There was no question that Greats had been the first person to transverse the continent by automobile, but his claims of being the first white man to reach this and that river and lake were contested by a variety of settlers, hunters, journalists, and etc. Nevertheless, the timing was fortuitous. At just the moment when Europe was fever-dreaming about dinosaurs cloaked in the depths of African jungles never entered by white men, along came a white man intent on entering them. Maybe he'd run across a dinosaur on his way. When Greats returned in 1912, he said that he had heard from villagers along Lake Bangweulu in present-day Zambia of a beast they called the Klupekwi, which Greats described as a degenerate saurian. A year later, another German military man, Captain Freyer von Stein, supposedly traveled to then-German-controlled Cameroon to survey the territory, where, again supposedly, he wrote up a report of a gigantic animal, once more supposedly, conveyed to him by some villagers along the Sumbo River. The animal is said to be of a brownish-gray color with a smooth skin, von Stein one last time supposedly wrote. Its size is approximately that of an elephant, at least that of a hippopotamus. It is said to have a long and very flexible neck and only one tooth, but a very long one. Some say it is a horn. A few spoke about a long, muscular tail like that of an alligator. Canoes coming near it are said to be doomed. There's more, but let's clarify all those supposedlies. This snippet of von Stein's territorial report was never published and has never been found or seen in any form other than in a couple of books, including one written by Willie Lay. Lay was best known for his interest in rocketry and for helping to spread that interest to the public. 
first in Germany before the Great Depression, and later in the United States, which he fled to after the rise of Nazism. He walked an interesting line between science and science fiction. While most science fiction writers of the day were focused on spectacular or impossible scenarios, Lay became one of the grandfathers of what's now called hard sci-fi, where events are made to conform as much as possible to real science. Most of that science was to do with rockets and how they could take people to space. But he also wrote real explainers of how rockets worked, including a 1944 description of a three-stage rocket going to the moon, which helped inspire the Saturn V design that accomplished that feat on July 20th, 1969, just a month after Lay's death. Aside from his work on space travel and rockets, Willie Lay was also one of the direct predecessors of Sanderson, Uvelmans, and the other early cryptozoologists. In 1941, he published The Lungfish and the Unicorn, An Excursion into Romantic Zoology. It is a truly wonderful, entertaining, and fascinating book, and it really earns that subtitle, unlike Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. In The Lungfish and the Unicorn, Lay takes readers on a journey through the weirder counties of the animal kingdom. He details mythical beasts, such as the eponymous unicorn, the basilisk, and the vegetable lamb, and makes detailed, careful examinations of where those myths might have originated. He's not always right, of course, but he does a pretty good job overall. In the second section of the book, he turns to animals thought to be extinct, and argues, frequently correctly, that there might be some still out there, like the bison and the wild horse, and frequently incorrectly, like the great auk and the giant sloth. In the third section, called Witnesses of the Past, Lay makes grounded and interesting work of so-called living fossils that long confounded science, like the horseshoe crab, the lungfish, and the platypus. Then he turns to Africa. Lay makes what is, at the least, an interesting argument. Africa, he explains, is a continent full up with animals once thought to be myths. The aardvark, the akapi, and the Congo peafowl were all once considered nothing but legends, dismissed out of hand as the superstitions of backward Africans by European explorers and scientists. Who knows what else might be hiding in the jungle depths, he asks. Well, Lay knew, or thought he knew. His case begins not in Cameroon or in Africa at all, but Iraq, at the site of the old city of Babylon. There, the German archaeologist Robert Caldaway had excavated a great gate of brilliantly glazed blue brick, 50 feet high, commissioned by King Nebuchadnezzar II around 575 BC. After it was fully excavated, the Ishtar Gate was taken brick by brick to Berlin, where it was reconstructed at the Pergamon Museum. Iraq has repeatedly argued, quite rightly, if you ask me, that it belongs to them and that the German government should return the stolen cultural relic. Some have even argued that if the Ishtar Gate had been in Iraq in 2003, it might have given pause to the American bombing runs that strafed the country. Which I doubt, because have you met Donald Rumsfeld? But all that is neither here nor there. The important thing about the Ishtar Gate to Lay was that it was covered in Ba's reliefs, golden pictures of three animals repeating over and over, like the world's most elaborate and valuable wallpaper. One of the animals is a lion. The second is an auroch, a large bull that's been extinct since the 1600s. And the third is a dragon. To Lay, this presented a riddle. Three kinds of animals drawn upon the Ishtar Gate, 
one is well known in the world today. The second was well known to the world up until the 17th century. And the third? Why shouldn't it be real too? The dragons of the Ishtar Gate, today known as Mushkushu, don't breathe fire. They don't have wings. They look, at least to the sauropod-obsessed Europeans of the mid-20th century, quite a lot like dinosaurs. It's worth saying that this is not just Lay's conjecture. Coldway thought the Mushkushu was probably a real animal known to the Babylonians too. The various images of the creature found in the wreckage of the city were all too consistent, he thought, to be a thing of myth. He figured it was a now extinct species, related perhaps to the Iguanodon, and that it must have been the same dragon of Babylon, which was poisoned in the 14th chapter of the Book of Daniel. Where Lay differed from Coldaway is in that extinction part. Lay thought the beast which inspired the Mushkushu of the Ishtar Gate might still be out there because of the supposed unpublished report of Cameroon Captain Freyer von Stein. It could be that Lay invented that report. It doesn't seem like his style, to be honest, and all of the other reports Lay collects to bolster his case of an African dinosaur are the real deal, or I should say, Lay at least didn't fabricate them. There are plenty. Hans Schomburg, the same big game hunter whom Carl Hagenbeck cited in his article, says that he heard about the half-dragon, half-elephant while he was out trying to locate the pygmy hippo in Liberia. Although Schomburg was careful to skeptically note that, quote, the natives wishing to please the white visitor and hoping for a valuable gift at the same time are only too ready to assert that they know of an animal in their territory with blue skin, six legs, one eye, and four tusks. The size is entirely up to the questioner. The native will tell him what he thinks the white man wants to hear. But even with that caveat, Schomburg was convinced that the beast did exist. Lay also finds mentions from the Kwekwe peoples of the Orange River of an aquatic big snake called Groot Slang. Superintendent of African Protectorates Sir Clement Hill said that he had seen a, quote, long-necked beast in Lake Victoria. The Lozi people of western Zambia called the animal Lao, and while in some accounts the whole body was that of a snake, in others it's only the neck and head that are serpentine. Mushkushu, Grootslang, Lao, to Lay they were all one and the same, and he gave it the name von Stein had described in his report, which was the one that stuck, Mokele Mbembe, which, according to von Stein, according to Lay, meant one that stops the flow of rivers. Now, Willie Lay understood that most people thought dinosaurs were extinct, and he admitted that might very well be. But in The Lungfish and the Unicorn, he argued that if any great sauropods had survived, they would be in Central Africa, where the dense forest could protect them from discovery and the equatorial heat could protect them from ice ages. Taken together with the accounts of both Africans and Europeans and the dragons of the Ishtar Gate, the circumstances pointed to what he called a zoological puzzle of fantastic dimensions. Namely, is the Mokele Mbembe still out there? Possible herpetologist James H. Powell told Roy Mackle that the answer was yes. By the time he met Mackle, Powell had traveled to the People's Republic of Congo, Gabon, and Cameroon under grants from the Explorers Club. 
The Explorers Club understood that he was there primarily to study crocodiles, but that while he was around, he might look into the Mokele Mbembe. In practice, Powell's priorities were exactly the other way around. He'd collected, he said, numerous testimonials from various tribes around the area that attested the existence of a large sauropod-like animal. He wondered if Mackle would be interested in bringing his scientific approach and credibility to the Congo and help Powell locate the animal. He didn't have to ask twice. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In 1979, Powell and Mackle set off for the Congo in search of Mokele Mbembe. They started out from the town of Imfondo with the help of an elder white missionary by the name of Reverend Eugene Thomas, who'd been in country since 1955. Thomas assured the two that he'd heard of the Mokele Mbembe many times and that he could find numerous eyewitnesses for them to interview. And, well... He did. And they did. The credulous accounts written by Mackle, Powell, and other cryptozoologists to follow include a bevy of testimonies from Congolese villagers. These testimonies, according to them, are remarkably consistent and uncoerced. More impressive still, 
Samokele and Bembe believers, Mackel and Powell brought along a book of pictures, which included mixed images of local animals the villagers would be familiar with, non-local animals they wouldn't know, mythological animals that don't exist, and an Apatosaurus. When scrolling through these pictures, local knew the ones they should and didn't the ones they shouldn't, and they identified the Apatosaurus as one and the same with the Mokele and Bembe. It's a pretty impressive pile of stuff. But unsurprisingly, when you look a little closer, things get decidedly more dicey. Take the most striking story they collected, that in 1959 or 1960, some villagers in the Likuala region of the Congo encountered a Mokele and Bembe and speared it to death. They cooked and ate its flesh. So goes the story, all who ate of it were either sickened or killed. Where exactly this tale came from is hard to parse. According to Mackle, he first heard it as a vague rumor, which the explorers then tracked to a third-hand account from a Congolese soldier who said he'd heard about it from his wife who'd heard it from who knows. Then, they supposedly got a more official version, though still several steps removed via a local government official. Finally, they tracked the story to where it supposedly happened, Lake Telly, and asked the president of the Apina district what he knew about it. President Kalanga knew nothing, less than nothing, actually. When Mackel asked specifically about the term Mokele Mbembe, one who stops the flow of rivers, Kalanga said that wasn't what it meant at all. Mokele Mbembe wasn't the word for an animal or a monster or a dinosaur. It meant simply rainbow. And it's at this moment that Roy Mackel had to choose between his two hats. Science or romance? If he chose science, he would have to admit that President Kalanga's story was a setback, counter-evidence to his hypothesis. It didn't doom the story completely, but it sure as hell didn't help. Instead, he lashed out. Why was Kalanga covering up the truth? Why wasn't he telling him what he knew? We have heard several times over, Mackle told him, that a Mokele Mbembe was killed sometime in the past in Lake Telly. We have heard, too, that this Mokele Mbembe is very dangerous, although its food is strictly vegetable material. The Malumbo is its favorite food. If your people, or rather the pygmies at Lake Telly, are able to kill a rainbow with spears, and the rainbow eats Malumbo fruit, we are very interested. The next day, Kalanga changed his tune. He had heard, he said, of the Mokele Mbembe, the one who blocks the flow of rivers. Sometime in the past, some locals had killed it with spears. It was very dangerous, he said, although its food is strictly vegetable material. The Malumbo is its favorite food. Kalanga found two local fishermen who were brought in to tell Mackle and Powell what they wanted to hear. The first said that he remembered the killing of the Mokele and Bembe from when he was a child. Some fishermen had trapped it at Lake Telly with a barricade and speared it to death. Then they cut it up and ate it, and all who ate it died. The second man, who was standing right there to hear this, confirmed the story almost word for word. In his book about the expedition, Mackle seems to have understood the problem, that he'd fed the entire story, the characters, the events, even the location, right to the people he was interrogating. If there was anything negative about this informative meeting, he wrote, it is that all or most of the eyewitnesses were in the same room, hearing everything that was being reported. Mustn't dwell. In spite of what should have been an understanding that the only unsolicited, unprompted insight they had received had been negative, Mackle and Powell walked away confident that the story was true and that their tainted witnesses had confirmed it. 
This sort of thing is between the lines of almost every event Mackle and Powell experienced during the expedition. Time and again, when Mackle asks locals about the Mackelly and Bembe, they have no idea what he's talking about. But both Mackle and Powell assumed that this was a defense mechanism, a lie born of distrust for foreigners. So, time and again, they would explain, in greater and greater detail, what they knew about the monster, until eventually, sometimes after being given beer, other times after being threatened by Congolese soldiers, they acquiesced and told the cryptozoologists what they wanted to hear. When Powell had been in the area in 1976, he had interviewed one man who told him he had heard of the animal, but never seen it. When he and Mackle returned to his village in 1979, they met the man again, and this time he sang a different tune. He told them that he had built a hut along the river 20 years ago from which he had seen the dinosaur. He offered to take them to the place and act as their guide for a fee. Again, Mackle and Powell were unskeptical. No one at that village recognized the picture of the apatosaur, and the word they used wasn't Mokele Mbembe, but Niamala, which a village elder explained to Powell was an imaginary animal. The supposed scientists ignored all of that, just like they ignored the many other monsters they were told about which didn't agree with their priors. A giant lion, a giant turtle, a giant crocodile, a giant snake, and so on and so forth. Roy Mackle came away from his first expedition incredibly convinced, but he needed more. He and Powell had wanted to go to Lake Telly, where the coerced witnesses claimed bits of the barricade used in the spearing incident still remained, but their visas ran out and they had to return to America. In 1981, Mackle came back with a larger search party to try to reach Lake Telly. Unfortunately, there was a lot of tree fall in the river leading up to the lake and the expedition found the path impassable. But Mackle managed to get the confirmation he was looking for. One day, as their canoes were rounding a bend near the town of Apina, the team saw a huge ripple, as from a large animal submerging. There were three things that could have made the wake he'd spotted. A crocodile, a hippo, or the Mikele and Bembe. We can cross off the crocodile, though, because the wake was too big. And it couldn't have been a hippo, either, because hippos didn't hang around in that area. Therefore, it had to be the Mokele and Bembe. Okay, fine. Why didn't hippos hang around in that area, you might ask? And the answer is the most frustrating bit of bad logic I've maybe ever run across. So bite down on something hard. According to Mackle, it had to be a Mokele and Bembe because there were no hippos around because they had been scared off by the Mokele and Bembe. <laughs> Roy Mackle, the skeptical, assiduous, and careful scientist who had helped us understand DNA, viruses, and bacteria, was almost fully gone now, replaced by a true believer. And he wasn't totally unaware of it either, but he took his own zealousness as evidence that he must be onto something. In 1988, he told author Russell B. Adams, I admit that my own views are tinged with some romanticism, but certainly not to the extent that I would endure extreme hardship, even risk my life to pursue a dream with no basis in reality. Why would he believe something to be true so hard if it weren't? 
The hardship, by the way, was real. From the time he started looking for Nessie, his colleagues at the University of Chicago had been looking at him funny. After his expeditions into the Congo to look for dinosaurs, they basically ostracized him. He wasn't kicked out, though, in part because U of C fancies itself a bastion of intellectual freedom, and probably in larger part because Mackle had tenure. He was taken off the virology lab, which was fair enough since he hadn't done any work in the field in a solid decade, and he was unofficially booted out of the biology department, striking a deal to work instead as the university's official energy and safety coordinator, where his duties amounted to making proposals for improved energy efficiency and biohazard disposal. The biology department agreed to give him one course to teach each semester, not in virology or DNA or microbiology or biochem, but a survey course entitled An Inquiry into Zoological Mysteries. Roy Mackle didn't hold any of it against the admin. He understood who he was and what he was doing. He'd sacrificed a prominent career in an established and important field in order to try something weird and incredible. And he was thankful that UChicago supported that as much as they did. In an interview with the campus paper, he said, they've been wonderful to me. The administration believes a professor should be able to make a fool of himself if he wants to, so long as it's not immoral or illegal. If something works out and we get famous, I'm their boy. If not, they never heard of me. Roy Mackle did get a bit famous, or maybe infamous is the better word. Shortly after returning from his second African expedition, he joined up with Bernard Uvelmans to form the International Society of Cryptozoology. The ISC, like all of Mackel's work, attempted to take the question of cryptids with scientific seriousness, even running a peer-reviewed journal. But also, like all of Mackel's work, it regularly fell short. ISC advertised themselves as an impartial adjudicator of evidence. If you thought you got video of Bigfoot or a rotting globule of sea monster washed up on a beach, they would analyze and test for authenticity. But frequently they came back with positive hits that subsequent analysis debunked. On at least one occasion, Mackle was directly involved. In 1986, he published a paper in the ISC's journal called simply Cryptozoology, entitled Biochemical Analysis of Preserved Octopus Gigantus Tissue. It was a really startling article. Back in 1896, a large and difficult-to-identify carcass had washed up on a beach in St. Augustine, Florida. Colloquially known as the St. Augustine Monster, it was a mystery, what cryptozoologists call a globster. Some figured it was just the remains of a whale, but the more incredibly inclined suspected it might be the remains of a giant octopus. Mackle's article attempted to settle that question. Roy Mackle didn't have zoological training or field training or any of the stuff you might want in someone exploring the Congo for dinosaurs, but he was a real and extremely accomplished biochemist. So when he took a look at some preserved tissue from the century-old globster, he was, for the first time in years, back in his wheelhouse. By comparing the amino acid composition of the St. Augustine monster against various marine animals, including dolphins, beluga whales, giant squid, and two species of octopuses, he concluded that the monster was not a mammal, and probably some yet unknown species of giant octopus, as previously claimed by fellow cryptozoologists. Ten years later, a more thorough examination undertaken of the same sample showed Mackle was wrong. The remains were made of blubber from a whale. 
The implication was that Roy Mackle was now so corrupted by his romantic beliefs that he couldn't even be trusted to do the thing he was good at. The refutation was published by the University of Chicago itself, which has got to sting. Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, was marketed as an action comedy, though it pretty well failed in both respects. But what genre does the true story of Roy Mackle and the Mokele Mbembe fall into? Professor Mackle was, by all accounts, happy. I think we can assume he was more interested in chasing monsters than viruses. He doesn't seem to have been overbothered by the eye rolls and jokes he faced around the workplace and was thankful he got to stay on, knowing that what he was doing was controversial. He wrote a series of books about various cryptids, including two on his search for the Mokele Mbembe, and both sold better and earned him more attention and admiration than he could have ever gotten writing about bacteriophages. If he took his adventures a bit too seriously, so what? Certainly most people interested in what he had to say about the Loch Ness Monster or the African Apatosaur mostly took it in good fun, right? Because it is fun to suspend your disbelief and imagine for a few minutes that there are dinosaurs hiding out there in the shrouded corners of the world. I think the story of Roy Mackle is a tragedy. But then the question is, a tragedy for whom? And the answer comes from a television show. Witnesses around the world report seeing monsters. Are they real or imaginary? Science searches for answers. On Monster Quest. Monster Quest was a reality TV docuseries that aired between 2007 and 2010 on, of course, the History Channel. God damn it, History Channel. What's truly galling is that at the time, critics considered Monster Quest to be a healthy sign of life for the History Channel, something of an intellectual bastion amid their other programming, which was increasingly made up of reality shows like Pawn Stars and Axemen, but also included things like Quest for the Lost Ark, hey, I'm going to do an episode about that down the line, and Batman Unmasked, The Psychology of the Dark Knight, and Crap. A short history, which might have just been a summary of the rest of their lineup. Monster Quest was hardly innovative. It was precisely the kind of sensationally vague pseudoscience that enraptured me as a boy on Saturday afternoons once the cartoons were over. On each episode, some crew of scientists, notice my air quotes, embark on an expedition to search for some unlikely large creature or another, while armchair interviews with conspiracy theorists and skeptics are interspersed in with typical mid-2000s both-sides flair. In Season 3, Monster Quest took on the Mokele Mbembe, with an episode entitled The Last Dinosaur, which is a lot better than Baby Search for the Lost Legend, come to think of it. It's a monster that's terrified the masses. This animal uh, can hurt everything on in the river. This massive creature is said to be twice the size of an elephant. They talk about an animal between 30 to 70 feet in length with long, thin neck, bulbous body, and the heavy tail, the elephant-like legs. An animal thought to have been extinct for centuries. In fact, I think I'd feel safer in Jurassic Park. Now, Monster Quest travels to the wildest continent, search for the last living dinosaur. One of the dueling experts in the pullaway was Donald Prothero, an American paleontologist who has written extensively about the history and science, or more accurately, lack thereof, of cryptozoology, 
whose work was also invaluable in researching this story. But some experts simply don't believe it is possible for such an animal to exist. Well, we know the fossil record of sauropod dinosaurs very well. They actually died out sometime before the rest of the dinosaurs died out. The believer on the other side of the, check out these air quotes again, debate was none other than Professor Roy Mackle. The first known account of the Mokelion Bembi is in a book written in 1776 by Abby Proyard. Mackle was 85 at the time and long retired. I'm fairly certain that Monster Quest was his last public appearance before he died of heart failure in 2013, and he avails himself as well as can be expected. But forget about the veggies and potatoes. Let's look at the meat. The expedition itself is way funnier than anything baby Secret of the Lost Legend could hope to deliver. There's terrible CGI, chintzy reenactments, and more dramatic sting hits than you can shake a stick at. As for the investigation itself, it's beyond laughable. The investigators spend a lot of time trolling up and down river with a fish finder. I'm still checking. Uh, drop it a little more into the water. Pointing at every stick and stone on the dot matrix radar screen and saying things like, Is that a crocodile? Yeah, it looks like a croc, yeah. It's very big, whatever it is. That's too big to be a crocodile. I'm trying to get down as, as low as I can. Or, yeah, look I'm at the size of that. Okay, we have another large target at the bottom here. That, look, that looks like a croc. That's a croc. Crocodile? Yes. It's long and serpentine, whatever that it was. That was a very, very big target. Huge. They seem to find a new underwater dinosaur every 15 seconds, and only passingly acknowledge that they're never in more than eight feet of water, which you'd think would make it difficult for a 30-foot-long sauropod to hide. At one point, they discover a muddy hole in the side of the shoreline and are convinced there must be a Mokelium Bembe hiding inside, even though the opening would barely be big enough for my chihuahua to slip through. With their goal supposedly just within reach, they decide to poke the hole with a stick for a while. Then they get bored and move on. It is very entertaining, though not in the sense they intend. After 45 minutes of this bungling, you might wonder who the hell these investigators are, but the show won't give you much of an answer. It identifies them as Robert Mullen and William Gibbons, but doesn't give any credentials or backgrounds for the two. And that, as it turns out, is for a very good reason. The younger of the two is Robert Mullen, a ruggedly handsome man who wouldn't be out of place in a straight-to-DVD Indiana Jones knockoff. Oh! Maybe he could play Paul Greitz. Mullen's biography, such as I've been able to uncover it, leaves a lot to be desired. He appears to have no scientific training or education of any kind. He's a self-published science fiction author whose chief self-noted credit is a fan chronology of the Star Wars universe. Professionally, he appears to be a manager at an off-site records and document shredding company in Colorado Springs. So... How did the author of such modern classics as Bid the Gods Arise, Prophecy of the Air, and Guardian of God, the Young Messiah, end up hunting the Mokelium Bembe in equatorial Africa? Simple. He was on an internet bulletin board with William Gibbons and asked him if he could come. Gibbons has been the go-to Mokelium Bembe expert, man, I'm gonna sprain an index finger with all this air quoting, since Roy Mackle retired. But where Mackle was a University of Chicago biology professor, Gibbons' professional background is a bit more anemic. 
Depending on the source, I've seen claims that he possesses five different degrees from two different institutions. What both of those institutions have in common is their bad reputations. For instance, he's claimed to have a PhD in cultural anthropology from Warnborough College, Oxford. Which is interesting for at least three reasons. First of all, Warnborough doesn't offer a PhD in cultural anthropology, not currently at least, but when you go looking to see if they ever did, the only thing that comes up is other bios of William Gibbons. Hmm. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. You might think that Warnborough College, Oxford is a part of, you know, Oxford. You might think so, and so might dozens of others who were defrauded by the unaffiliated Warnborough College into thinking they were going to Oxford. Instead, Warnborough was an unaccredited, non-degree-granting, for-profit institution, which swiftly became the subject of multiple lawsuits, including from Oxford University itself, most of which delivered fines to Warnborough, which the college never paid. The other school that features heavily in Gibbons' bio is arguably worse. Emmanuel Baptist College in Peachtree City, Georgia. Emmanuel Baptist College no longer exists by that name. It's now known as Emmanuel Baptist Theological Seminary. And like Warrenborough, it is unaccredited. In Emmanuel's case, they claim that lack of accreditation is voluntary. A matter of conscience is how they put it, since they don't believe the government should get to say whether a school is real or not. <laughs> Convenient, seeing as there is absolutely no way they'd pass muster if they wanted to. A suspicious number of the faculty and board are related to one another, and nearly all of them either don't have terminal degrees at all, or have degrees that aren't accredited, usually from Emmanuel Baptist. Pretty concerning! Arguably worse is how little Emmanuel Baptist's website has to say about like pedagogy or coursework or education more generally. Instead, there's a litany of grievance with the immoral liberalism of the modern world, along with a whole lot of Bible thumping. It appears that the chief qualification for admission to Emmanuel Baptist is agreeing with their statement of doctrine, which is from stem to stern a religious credo that begins, tellingly, we believe the whole Bible, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, as the verbally inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. We believe in the special creation of the world and the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. What you wouldn't know from watching Monster Quest is <laughs> a lot of things, but specifically... What you wouldn't know from watching Monster Quest is that, by the end, willingly or otherwise, Dr. Roy Mackle wasn't just allied with fellow romantics, but with young Earth creationists. Gibbons is a prominent member of the Institute for Creation Research, while his assistant, Robert Mullen, spent seven years as an editor at the similarly dubious Creation Research Society. It makes a certain kind of slippery slope sense. The legend of the Michele Mbembe is, in actuality, a selective composite of legends from a smorgasbord of places, peoples, and times. German officers, African villagers, ancient Babylonian masonry, etc. To believe in it requires one to elevate the favorable and turn a blind eye to everything else. 
Why did the first stories about this supposed dinosaur take place in South Africa, or Rhodesia, or any number of other points hundreds or thousands of miles removed from the Congo? Don't worry about it. How could a breeding population of 30-foot-long dinosaurs survive continuously in Central Africa without leaving any physical evidence, not just in the last century, but any time in the last 65 million years? Just a coincidence. Don't we now know that sauropods weren't aquatic? That they didn't live in rivers, but primarily in conifer forests? In fact, isn't there good reason to believe that a totally submerged sauropod would capsize or even have its lungs collapse from the water pressure? Isn't the whole notion of this living dinosaur an ironic artifact of an obsolete and primitive early misunderstanding of dinosaur behavior? Well, who's to say? The romanticism Roy Mackle showed for the Michelian Bembe was more like a kind of faith. And by the time he retired, that faith had been usurped by a different even more incredible kind. And that, to me, is the real tragedy. Mackle was curious, then hopeful, then believing. And that opened the door for his replacements, nearly all of whom are fundamentalist Christians who believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old, that the universe was created in six days, and that humans lived with dinosaurs. And although I have no reason to believe Mackle was himself a part of that rabble, by 2009, he was giving his last public appearance on a shitty cable television show tacitly endorsing them. Which, I think, is pretty goddamn tragic. William Gibbons isn't interested in finding the Mokelli and Bembe for discovery's sake, but because he believes that locating a living dinosaur will prove that evolution is wrong and creationism is correct. How would it do that? Good question. Now that is how you voice an ellipse, baby. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. This show is only made possible through the support of people like you. People who listen, people who spread the word and tell their friends, people who rate and review, and especially people who go to patreon.com slash the constant to become financial supporters. People like Mike Kennedy, Andrew Murphy, Cillian Murphy, Jake Woods, Peter Oliphant, Inbar Meyerson, Maggie Osterberg, and Sean Sinitsky. Thank you so much for helping me make this show. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Sue, who is both the most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex ever found and an outstanding Twitter personality, this has been The Constant. Now that's how you voice an ellipse, baby! Now that is how you voice an ellipse, baby! Now that's how you voice an ellipse, baby! Now that is how you voice an ellipse, baby! Uh.